Excellent. Um, hopefully that gave you a, a good picture, a little picture of what uh, our time was like. Uh, our folks who went will be sharing a little bit in the weeks and in, in the months to come about um, some of the specific things that the Lord allowed them to see. Would you pray with me as we uh, continue in our time here? Father in heaven, we thank you um, that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. For every person in here, as well as for every person in remote villages in Ecuador, for every person on the island of the Dominican Republic and throughout the world where war-torn countries, where fighting goes on in Palestine, Palestinian areas where there's so much craziness in, in places like Ukraine. And God, in, in the midst of all these things, one thing will remain. Jesus Christ is the hope that the world desperately needs. As we hear your word, as we look into it now, we pray that we would hear your voice, that you would speak to us, my gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad, literally through your people, your church here, the honors of your name. Thank you so much. May there be fruit born as a result of this time here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a restaurant that's pretty famous here. Um, They don't have it in Virginia. I think for good reason, but it's called Sweet Tomatoes, and the first time I went to Sweet Tomatoes was about uh, 12 or so years ago. First time I went, we had some, some guests visiting from Virginia from out of town, and uh, we'd been hanging out after a retreat, and they wanted to, to eat somewhere. Uh, we'd been eating out a lot of different places, so they said, we want to eat somewhere healthy, so I suggested we go to Steak and Shake, and they shot that idea down. So some of the gals in our congregation said, hey, there's a place called Sweet Tomatoes, and uh, I immediately said, well, I don't think that's a good idea based on the word tomatoes being in the name of the restaurant. Um, But they said, no, it's okay. You'll like it. It's a buffet. Needless to say, uh, it took a little bit of of time before they confessed that it was a salad buffet, uh, which is not really my my cup of tea, especially it wasn't 12 years ago. So we got to this thing, this place, and I had high hopes because of the fact that it was a buffet. You know, buffets, usually we have a certain expectation and they carry certain connotations. A buffet, you eat all you want, right? You eat to your stomach's delight. You eat until you're full. You eat until you're satisfied. And I got there with these expectations. And as soon as I got into the line, all I saw was like healthy stuff, right? Nothing, <laughs> nothing brown was there. It was all like colorful things. There was lettuce, like a pre-made uh, Asian salad. There was like a wonton salad, all kinds of different salads, uh, Caesar salad. And then I moved on and there were carrots and there were olives and there were beans and there were beets and, and all this stuff, but there was no meat. And I was like, man, this can't be all there is to it. They said, oh, if you look over here, there's like a bakery, and then they got soup and stuff like that. And so I went through, I scoured the entire restaurant looking for some kind of meat, only to be disappointed. The only meat was in the chicken noodle soup. And so, you know, the guys and, and I, we pretty much took out all of the meat until it, it just said, it just said noodle soup. Um, but we took out all of the chicken from it, and that's basically all we had. At the end of it, uh, some of the gal, <coughs> gals pushed back from the table and said, oh, I'm so full. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> the guys and I were like, we need to go. Let's go eat at McDonald's or somewhere else because it was a completely unsatisfying meal. Have you ever been to a buffet like that? Where a buffet, all these options, hundreds of things that you could choose from. Surely there'll be something that can satisfy your hunger. And yet at the end of your time at the table, you leave completely unsatisfied. Have you ever been like that? 
when the Bible talks about life in this world, that's the picture that the world is being painted with. That's the picture that's being painted of the world. It's got all of these things that promise you life and enjoyment and satisfaction. And yet with every taste of it, you push back from the table wondering and asking, there's got to be more. But what is it that a hungry world really needs? I want to answer that question by looking at John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. It's a passage, it's an account that uh, many people, whether you've grown up in church or not, uh, have heard of before. It's one of of the only accounts of Jesus' life, the only snapshots of Jesus' life that's written about in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to read verses 1 through 15 and ask this question, what is it that a hungry world needs? And why is this account written about in all four of the Gospels? John chapter 6, we're going to read starting in verse 1 through verse 15. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Other of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself, is God's word. Uh, We're not going to go deep into explain. I'm not going to explain a lot about this passage because uh, it pretty much speaks for itself. Jesus hanging out with his disciples. Uh, The other accounts say that the people saw the miracles that Jesus was doing, and so they followed Jesus. They're following him. Some accounts say that they had followed him for a long time. He'd been teaching for quite a while, so much to the point that the people got hungry while they were in the crowd. And so Jesus says, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed these people? It says here in John's gospel that he knew what he was going to do, but he was asking his disciples, what are we going to do to see what kind of answer they would come up with? Why is it that this passage of Jesus feeding 5,000 people, in other accounts, there are other accounts separate from this, where he not only feeds 5,000, but he feeds 4,000 in a different day. Why is this recorded? Why is this important? The first thing uh, of three, the first thing I want to share is that the kingdom of the world is, I'm sorry, the kingdom of God is radically different from the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God is radically different from the kingdom of the world. So 
it will help us to understand what, how, how we get that from here by understanding what Jesus was doing whenever he did these miracles. His miracles, if you read here in verse 14, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did. He's always talking, John's gospel always says that Jesus is not just doing miracles, not raw demonstrations of power, but these are signs. What are they signs of? Jesus, it's interesting. He could have done, as God, he could have done anything that he wanted to. But he wasn't some, like, street magician saying, hey, check this out. Uh, give me a bunch, of, give me a bunch of, of marbles. I'm going to turn them into candy or something like that. He didn't do that. He didn't say, hey, watch me um, jump off this mountain and, and do a few flips and fly around. And, and then I'll blow uh, some bubbles into the air and, and you'll see all these. He didn't, he didn't do just raw demonstrations of power like that, as if he was saying, hey, come look at what I'm doing. It's not like in Bruce Almighty where Bruce gets this power from God and then he like turns around and fire hide and starts like blowing up. That's not the kind of things that Jesus did. What was Jesus doing when he was performing his miracles? Again, John calls them signs as a way of saying that they're pointing to a greater reality. What is the reality that he's pointing to? Everything that Jesus did in his miracles was showing that the entrance of the kingdom of God has come into our world. That the kingdom of God has broken into the world. So everything he's doing is different from the ways that the world does things. For example, Jesus raises a dead person. He's saying in this world, in the kingdom of the world, people die all the time. But when you put your trust in me, this is what you will be seeing. The dead are going to come to life. One day that's going to be done in an ultimate sense. But he's saying, let me give you a a, a foreshadow. Let me give you a taste of that. Let me give you a sample of that so that you can see what life is like when you come into my kingdom. There was a sick person. Jesus healed that sick person to say that in this world, it's filled with sickness. But when you come to me, I restore health to you in a way that the world can't do. When Jesus calms the storm, he says, in this world, because of sin, we are at odds with nature. We fight against nature. Tsunamis take people's lives. Earthquakes kill people. Rains, torrential floods, they, 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 they wipe human life away. But in the kingdom that Jesus came to bring, we are at peace with nature because God makes all things right. Okay, these are what Jesus' miraculous signs are doing. So when you got people, hungry people out in the world, he's saying, this is what the world is filled with. The world is full of people who are starving and they're hungry. What does the kingdom of God do? It comes in and it satisfies the deepest longings and the deepest hunger of the human heart. Jesus is coming and he's saying, these miracles are pointing to the fact that the kingdom of God is diametrically opposed and radically different from the kingdom of the world. Whatever the world tries to do, it only leaves us dissatisfied like sweet tomatoes does for meat-seeking men. But what the world cannot do, Jesus alone can do. This is what he's saying. The kingdom of God is radically different from the kingdom of the world. The question that we have to ask is, if we are kingdom citizens... Do people see a difference in the way that we live? And do people want the things that you and I have because of Christ? The culture of the world is it at odds with the culture of the kingdom of God. And people need to see it. It's, it's true in every culture, every culture. We went, we went down to Ecuador and you saw, maybe you, you saw the little sign that said Sinangue. Sinangue, we went in uh, 2009 for the first time. It's a village of unreached people called the Kofan. And the second year, second or third year we went, second year we went, uh, our youth pastor at the time was a guy named Goose. And some of you guys remember this, but um, he was sending out a support letter asking people to pray 
for him and his trip and for the people that we're going to minister to. And the main people that we're trying to minister to was the people called the Kofan. And so he didn't know anything about them. So he did a Google search, a Wikipedia search, and he got all this information. And he's trying to build an appeal for why we need to pray for this unreached people group. He said these people are, are primitive. They're, they don't know Jesus. An unreached people group is basically a people that don't have enough Christians to form their own church. They need outside help in order to get that church established. And so he's saying, you know, only X percent of the people are, uh, know Jesus. Many people have never heard of the name of Jesus. And he's just building up this appeal. You need to pray for us. You need to pray for them. Pray that the gospel goes unchained into their hearts. And then to really seal the deal, he said he put a picture of the Kofan. And he put a picture up there that he'd gotten from the Internet. And it was this guy, just like ancient, old, old school Kofan guy with war paint on and, and feathers in his hair. And he had a bone sticking through his nose. He said, you've got to pray for these people. Needless to say, we were quite shocked when we got to Sinangwe and we saw that people were just like us, wearing Abercrombie t-shirts and some of them even had cell phones. That picture aside, I think it was very clear, though, that the culture of the Kofan was a lot different from the culture that we come from. The language that they speak is different. They speak a language called Kofan. We don't understand it. Even the Spanish that they speak is a little bit different from Spanish in mainstream Ecuadorian culture. The food that they eat is different. The way that they prepare it is different. The way that they interact with each other is different. The way that they get married in their four, at age 14, 15. They have babies by the time they're 16. This is different. I mean, that's normal. Sometimes that happens here, but that's normal for them. It was very easy to see early on that the culture of the Kofan is different from every other culture. Just like... Asian culture, uh, Chinese culture is different from African culture, is different from American culture, is different from every culture is different. It has its idiosyncrasies. And what Jesus is saying, when the kingdom of God comes, especially in the gospel of John, opposites are important in John's gospel. It's constantly talking about light and dark, life and death, day and night. He's saying the kingdom of God and the culture of the kingdom is radically different from the kingdom of the world. Listen, if you're a follower of Christ, when people who don't know Jesus in your life look at your life, do they see a culture that is different? Do they see a lifestyle that is different? Do they see a language that is different? Do they see priorities that are different? Do they see a use of money that is different? Do they see a difference in the life of kingdom culture when it's pressed up against the culture in which they live? Uh, a couple of weeks back, one of our, uh, one of our brothers, uh, Rick Terrell, he, uh, he called me up and said, hey, can we sit and chat? And so uh, he came to my office and we we're talking about this uh, job opportunity that he had. If you don't know Rick, he's involved a lot with uh, animation, video games, uh, programming and stuff like that. And, um, and he is highly sought after in his field. He worked at EA Sports, worked on the Madden football games. And um, he's, a, he's a bright star in that field. And he was recruited, being recruited by some of the major movers and shakers of the next cutting-edge technological platform um, out in California. And as he, we were talking about this, he's, you know, he's just explaining it to me. And it was in a completely uh, just matter-of-fact way. But as I'm hearing it, I'm realizing that he's sitting on a potential gold mine. Right? This is the chance of a lifetime for somebody in his field. Right, to go out there, to get his name out there. And, and one of the, some of the major players in that field are recruiting him to come. 
And so we're talking about what are the, what are the opportunity, what's the opportunity cost of staying? What's the opportunity cost of going? And from the world's perspective, it's a no-brainer. It is a no-brainer. But in his heart, he's thinking, Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, that the kingdom culture thinks about priorities differently. To seek first about the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. He was thinking about the people that he's praying for. He's thinking about the loss that he's ministering to. He's thinking about the families that he loves. He's thinking about his children and their spiritual growth. And at the end of the conversation, he said, you know what? It's pretty clear to me that I want to stay here and I want to continue to build God's kingdom, even if it means a substantial hit financially for him. I thought that's what it means to think according to kingdom culture. Some of you guys have given up dreams and given up what people would call consider better schools in order to stay and to build the kingdom of God in a place where you feel like you can grow the best. There's a difference in the way kingdom priorities look based on what kingdom we're a part of. Do people see a difference in the way we interact with our priority structures? Do people see a difference in the way we think because we're thinking along the lines of what Jesus teaches us to think? I remember going to the Dominican Republic uh, for, uh, for one of the first times I went out there. And I was, we were talking about some of the challenges in the DR to, to living a Christian life. And the, the missionary, the pastor there was explaining to me that in our country, 60% of pregnancies happen before the age of 14. Okay, 60% of pregnant women are 14 years old and younger. And he's saying this is sexuality swims is the pool in which our culture swims in. And by the time, uh, by, by the time these, these, these children grow up, right, they hit puberty earlier than we do here. By 14 years old, they're full-grown adults. And when they get bored, they've got this, this drive within them. And so what do they do? They sleep around with people. Many of them have, have children with fathers they, they don't know. Children will grow up without knowing who their dad is. One woman, I remember, she had five kids, all of them to different, to, to different fathers. I don't even know if you call them fathers, but to different men. And he was saying this is one of the greatest challenges in discipling young people is that this culture is awash in this. And so... I have to keep on telling them that despite what other people say, despite what other people are doing, the Bible tells us that we live differently, that we save ourselves for marriage. And I remember talking to some of these young people who grew up in this culture, and then now many years later, saying we saved ourselves because this is what Jesus told us to do. We kept ourselves pure, even though we, we, we gave our virginity away at a young age. From the time we began to realize that the kingdom culture is different, we saved ourselves for that time so that we could give ourselves fully to the person that we marry. There's a difference between the kingdom culture and the culture of the world in every aspect of our lives. Your priorities, the way you interact with the opposite gender, the way you interact with the same gender, the way you interact with your family members the way that you see people, the way that you treat people, the way you look at situations, the way you look at circumstances. Everything is different about the way that we live because our, we, we have new lenses through which we see. Has the kingdom of God invaded your life in such a way that kingdom culture has overtaken the world's culture so that people in the world look at your life and they see something different? Not only that, but they want something different. You and I are called to be commercials for the kingdom come, advertisements for the kingdom come, that simply by living life, people look at our lives and they say, you know what, my life doesn't reflect, my life doesn't have that. My life doesn't have that joy, doesn't have that peace, doesn't have that hope, and I want what they want, and I'd be willing to pay the price in order to get what they've got. Does your life reflect that? 
Because the first thing that Jesus is showing through the feeding of 5,000 hungry people in the world, Jesus is saying there's a radical difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. That's the first thing. How did this happen? The second thing, the kingdom of God advances through ordinary people. Ordinary people. Uh, Verse 8. They're trying to come up with a solution here. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? That's not eight months worth of wages. Five small barley loaves, two small fish, sardines is what literally it's saying. Barley loaves, the food of the poor. It's interesting because I remember we were back in the the DR several years ago and we were preparing our children's ministry stories, right, to tell the kids. And as we were preparing them, we were asked to make giant murals, posters of each of these stories. And each of them had a name. There was Daniel in the lion's den. There was David and Goliath. There were all of these different stories. And then there was this one of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And the title of the story was Young Boy. Pretty funny, isn't it? How is it that in one of the most significant miracle accounts in all of Scripture, that one of the primary figures doesn't even have a name? That we know of, at least. Here is a boy. Okay, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves. Why? Five small barley loaves, two small fish, that's it. Because the kingdom of God forcefully advances through normal, ordinary, nameless people like you and me. You know what, for every kingdom mover and shaker that you see on a platform somewhere, there's a wife, a mother, a congregation that is praying for them, the world will never know who they are. We'll never know who they are. But they're the ones who are advancing the kingdom of God. You see, it's just a boy. He doesn't even have a name. He doesn't even give a lot. But it's people like this the world may never know who are stealing the headlines in heaven. Ordinary Nameless people. People think they don't have much to offer. There is a, in, in every, in many countries, here in America, it's in Arlington, Virginia, Arlington National Cemetery, there's a tomb. I call the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. It, it remembers those soldiers, American soldiers, who fought for freedom, World War I, World War II, and Vietnam War. And that tomb represents one of these people whose remains remain unidentified, but who gave their lives fighting for a cause bigger than their own. And it says on the tombstone at Arlington National Cemetery, it says, here lies an honored glory, a soldier unknown but to God. The world will never know who these people are, but God knows who they are. They fight for the freedom of people. They fight for a cause bigger than their own, and they lay down their lives, pay the price, in order that others might be blessed. The kingdom of God moves forward by ordinary people like this boy who gave his lunch 
that I don't know what this can do amongst 5,000 people, but maybe I could just give it away. Maybe one person can be fed. Maybe just one person can eat this. Maybe Jesus will eat it, but he reckoned that it's better for him to give himself away than for him to sit on it himself. And as he gave it to Jesus, this God multiplying factor happens and a crowd of people were filled. Do you know that it doesn't take a lot to change the world as long as you give it to God in submission? There's so many times throughout the Bible where a little bit was multiplied by God in order that the world would be changed. It's two small coins, copper coins, not much, two pennies, two cents. A young widow gives all of herself in that offering. And Jesus sees it and he says, a testimony to the nations. She gave more than what most people gave. Five stones. It used one of them, one stone and one slingshot. Put it in God's hand. And it saved a nation from becoming enslaved. The little things that we give to God, a little staff, a little rod, a little piece of wood in Moses' hands, he gives it to God and it becomes a symbol of deliverance. You think little things, ordinary things can't do a lot. Three nails. Put them in God's hands. The world will be saved. You have no idea an ordinary person an ordinary person giving the little bit that we have, our loaves, our fishes. You believe that God can multiply that and use your life to change the lives of others around you? It's ordinary, nameless people who move forward the cause of God in this world. That's you. That's me. That's ordinary people. When we were leaving Ecuador Early Friday morning, our flight left. It was supposed to leave, schedule leave at 6 o'clock. Flying to Bogota, Colombia to get us into Orlando by 3 o'clock. 6 o'clock was our flight time. The airport was closed, it said, due to bad weather conditions. So we didn't get onto the plane until 7. We have a two-hour layover, which means that we've got two hours to get from, uh, as scheduled, to get from our first plane to the next plane. Two hours. We're an hour late already. We're about to leave, but we sit on the tarmac for another hour, not moving. By the time we leave, it's 8 o'clock. That's what time, uh, basically from the time, it, it, we have zero minutes. <laughs> We're, we have no chance. So as soon as we land, it's time for our flight. Our flight should have left already. But somehow, we made it onto that flight and into Orlando by 3.06 as scheduled. How? I'll tell you how. Soon as our plane landed in Bogota, Colombia, the flight attendant said, please remain seated unless you're going to Orlando, Florida. We said, that's us. Orlando, come on, come on, let's go. As soon as we got to the flight attendant who was saying bye-bye, they said, Orlando, we said yes. They said, follow this man. And right there, Five feet away was another guy. He said, Orlando? We said, yes. He said, go this way. Ten feet later, another guy, Orlando? Yes, follow me. Pointing us in different directions. Soon as we got out of, the, out of that whatever contraption that connects the plane to the gate, that, that wiggly thing, we got out. 
They're like, Orlando? We said yes. They're like, go this way. Every, literally, it was like every 20 feet, right? Every 20 feet, there was someone, Orlando, rapido, go, go, Orlando. And they're shooing us along. They're pointing us in the right direction until finally we're in the terminal. They're like, gate 40, go, 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 go. And we're running. And there's at least, there must have been at least 10, 15, 20 people that were guiding us along. Orlando, go. You've got to hurry. You've got to hurry. You've got to hurry. And we finally get to the gate. And they say, we're glad that you made it. What happens? When none of these people stop to say, hey, 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 after you get home, go on to Avianca Airlines website and give them my name. My name is Esmeralda. Tell them that I did a great job getting you to your flight in time. What happens when no one says that? Here's what happens. We say, you know what? Avianca is a great airline. They go out of their way to get people home. What happens when a young boy doesn't care about who gets the glory and Jesus receives the praise? What happens when people don't care about getting our name out there, when it doesn't matter who did this or who did that, when we just say, hey, you know what? As long as I can advance the kingdom of God as an ordinary, normal, nameless, faceless person, as long as Jesus gets the glory, I'm cool with that. Then Jesus gets the glory. You know, how much can be done if we don't give a rip about who gets praise and who gets adulation from the work that we do. The kingdom of God advances when a bunch of nobodies like us don't care to be somebody, but we tell everybody and anybody about the somebody that really matters in this world. Our singular aim in life, just like it was for them, is just let's get people home. Because the last thing that we see here is that the world will die without Jesus. The world will die without Jesus. Just let that sink into your heart for a second. Do you believe this in your heart? And and maybe you're not a follower of Christ and you don't believe this. Um, That's okay. Let me talk in-house to people who are part of the family of God. Do you believe that the world will die without Jesus Christ in their lives? Jesus is saying, these people are starving. They're hungry. Give them bread. Why did he do that? Because it would be a precursor to what he says in John chapter 6, verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. He's saying, just as much as the crowds needed bread to live. Every human heart needs the bread of life in order to live. Jesus Christ, you need him in order to live. Believe this to be true. One of the things that you uh, may have kind of seen briefly was a man in, in this video was a man lying down on his bed and we were ministering to him and we we're praying for him. This was in a town, a village called Dashino. Dashino was the last place that we went to. People there were very um, not welcome to the gospel. We went there a couple of days earlier to talk to their town leader, their village leaders. We're explaining we're, we're missionaries, we're followers of Christ. We want to we want to serve your community. They were very, uh, a little bit suspicious. They said two things to us. They said, we can't promise you that anyone will show up, first of all. And second of all, they said, we don't want you bringing foreign views and, and foreign ideas into our culture. We want to keep our culture pure. And so we said, Basically, okay, that's, that's fine. Okay, that's fine. Um, here are some things that we're going to do. We're, we're going to play with your children. We're going to sing with them. We're going to sing some, some songs. Uh, but we won't do any preaching. So we went to Dashino, 
And um, if you, you probably hear in some of these folks' testimonies, there is a, just a, a deep sense of, of, of hopelessness and, and emptiness in that place. Most of the people there never, never knew the name of Jesus. We were sitting there getting set up, and one of the, one of the ladies, uh, Olga, one of our, uh, the pastor's wives, um, came to me, and she said, hey, can you come with us? We're gonna, uh, they asked us to pray for someone who's dying of cancer. And so um, uh, I said, Kenny, let's go. Let's go uh, yeah, pray for this, for this person. So we got there. Um, he had lost his ability to speak, and uh, he was lying in, in bed. Uh, they'd done radiation therapy, but they said he was pretty much, he's, he's terminal, he's going to die. They give him a shot every other day. And so they asked us to pray for this guy. And so we get there. Um, there's two other pastors, pastor's wife, uh, Kenny and myself, we're, we're, we're standing there and uh, so I'm explaining to him about Isaiah 53, why we believe that Jesus Christ can heal. Talks about the suffering servant and how by his wounds we find our healing. And I, I, I mentioned to him that we're all sick in some way. Right? Some of us are physically sick. Some of us are emotionally sick. Some of us are mentally sick. But the greatest affliction that afflicts all of us is that we are spiritually sick. And we're all spiritually sick and we're all going to die. And we're going to pray for you to be healed. Let me say at the outset, I'm not sure how he is right now. But we said, we're going to pray for you to get healed physically. But even if you get healed physically right now, you're still going to die. And that spiritual sickness is going to remain. Uh, You could get healed right now physically. But if you don't deal with this spiritual sickness, then it does you no good. You could be healed physically right now, but you get the spiritual sickness healed, then you're good for all eternity. You cannot be healed physically, but if you're healed spiritually, then everything is going is to work out in the end. And so we began to explain. I, he'd been in church, I think, what, see, either 16 or 24 years ago. They were married in a Christian church, um, maybe gone to church a couple of times, but that's, that's about it. And so as we're explaining the gospel to them, and, and both he and his wife say, yeah, we need Christ in our lives. We want to pray to put our trust in Christ, and they did. Uh, they put their hope in him. And as we're just kind of putting pieces together, he, they, they later came out and they joined us in our outreach. And, and she, as a school teacher, said, I'm going to bring all of my school teacher friends uh, to what you guys are doing. I'm going to bring them out to the church. We've got a missionary named Gonzalo who's going to be stationed. He's going to be uh, working in that area. She said, whenever Gonzalo comes, he's welcome to stay at our house. I, they, they promised that they would study the Bible together with them. Our hope and our prayer is that these guys would become like the Samaritan woman. They encounter Jesus, and because of what Jesus does in them, they go and they tell their entire village about who Jesus is. That's our prayer, right? Pray with us for Philemon and for, and for Carmen. But that's, that's what we're praying for, man. Each of us, man, what is the hope? What is the hope? What is a, di- a person dying on his, uh, of cancer? What does he need more than anything else in life? And he needs Jesus, just like you and I do. What does a person struggling with depression need more than anything else in life? They need Jesus. What is a person who's hopeless and fearful and afraid and afraid to die? What do we need more than anything else in life? We need Jesus Christ in our lives. And as we're sitting on that tarmac in Quito, and I'm thinking to myself, as, as people are sleeping around me, I'm thinking to myself, you know what? What if we don't make it? What if we don't make it? 
What if we don't make it onto our next flight? And I was t- taken back to 2006. Same thing happened when we were going to do missions in, in Asia. Our flight out of Orlando was delayed to, to JFK in New York. And from New York, we we're supposed to fly to Asia. And I remember we were calling the airline, bothering them, telling them, hey, you got to hold the plane. There's seven of us coming and you got to hold the plane for us. So we're bombarding them with phone calls. People from all around are calling, telling them. To, so finally they say, okay, well, we'll hold the plane for one person. As soon as you land in JFK, then you send one person and they haul it to the gate. And if they get there in time, then we'll hold the plane for you guys. So as soon as we touched out at JFK, we sent our fastest gun. He takes off running. And the rest of us are running behind him. And he gets to the, gets to the gate and he looks dejected. And so we say, oh, stink. The doors to the gate are closed. We get there. And he walks back to us, Paul, and he says, they said it's too late. That is too late. And as we're sitting in Quito, as I was thinking about the people that I know and the people I don't know, the people I encountered, those words haunted me. It's too late. I don't want it to be too late. I don't want it to be too late for the people who don't know the Lord. I don't want it to be too late for the people in Deshino who don't know Jesus. I don't want it to be too late for the people in my life that I know who are dying and spending a restless, sleepless, godless eternity if they were to die. Now, I don't want it to be too late. And that haunted me as I was in between wakefulness and sleep. That haunted me that it's not just an airplane, but it's an eternity. And people are walking to the gate. And I don't want them to get there and say, it's too late. And for them to look at me and say, why? Why didn't you tell me sooner? Because the reality, not that I believe it's true because I believe it's a reality because God's word says it. That man is destined, Hebrews 9.27, man is destined to die once and then after that to face judgment. The world needs the bread of life. And here one boy said, I will give my loaves and fish in order that they might be fed. The sad thing is that so many times we've got our bread and our fish and we're sitting on our lunch when the world could be fed through what we've got. Evangelism, missions, sharing the gospel is about one beggar telling another beggar where they can find bread too. That's all it is. That's all it is. Why does the Bible constantly in the New Testament, when it talks about bread, say you need to break this bread? Break this bread. Jesus, after he had broken bread, gave thanks. In Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Why does it, why does it always say breaking? Why can't they just say to the eating of bread, to the enjoyment of bread, to the partaking of bread, to the sharing of bread? Why is it always a breaking of bread? Because everybody knew that in order for bread to be eaten, it needed to be broken. That's why Jesus says, and he stands on the last night of his life, says, this is my body. It's broken for you. And he uses bread. In that agrarian society, every person knew that in order for us to live, we need to eat. And in order for us to eat, something had to die. Everything, almost everything in that culture that people ate, first needed to die 
in order that others might live. Jesus Christ, the bread of life, he died in order that we might live. That bread was freely given to you and to me. Freely we receive, freely we give. One beggar telling another beggar where they can get bread. Let's pray. May these words haunt us in our sleep. It's too late. It's too late. It's too late. Let's pray for the people in our lives who don't know the Lord. Pray for the people of nations Don't know Jesus. Pray for the unreached people groups. Pray for the people of Deshino. By the grace of God that it would not be too late. By the power of the gospel, not be too late. By the giving of our loaves and fish, that it would not be too late by believing that the gospel really is the power of God for salvation, that it would not be too late. Through our house churches, through our youth ministry, because of that, that it would not be too late. It's amazing grace. Not our work, not our goodness, not our any of these things that save us. It's God's grace alone. And if that grace can save us, it can save anybody. Let's pray and ask the Lord God that we would have a sense of urgency in our hearts, that we would have a sense of, of longing in our hearts, just like the people of Avianca Airlines wanting to get us home, that we would be pointers, signs, living signs that point to the hope of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together for a couple moments, and then I'll pray, and we'll continue to worship through songs of commitment and to Pray together for Maybe some of us in here maybe challenge to step out of your comfort zone and say, God, the next opportunity I get, I'll go. As long as you don't stop me, I will go because you told your people, Jesus, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. That great commission, not the great idea, not the great suggestion, the great commission has been spoken to all. He already told us to go. And unless he says, don't go, we ought to go. So maybe some of you will make a commitment right now that you'd mark this. You'd come and share with someone afterwards. Hey, I've made a commitment to go next summer, this winter, whenever God calls me, God, I, I'm going to go. 
whenever God calls me, whenever God opens the opportunity, I'll go. I want to go. I want to tell people about Jesus. I want to incarnate that hope. I want to live in order that even though I may be nameless on earth, that I would make a difference in eternity. Let's pray for another minute and I'll, I'll pray for us. in heaven it took a young boy to show us what it means to fully trust in a crowd of 5,000 he probably had fears about stepping up to Jesus but the fears were overcome by the beauty of the call the beauty of the mission the beauty of the one who beckoned In that moment, all of the excuses began to fall to the wayside. He said, I may not be able to feed all of them, but I can feed someone with this. And God, you multiplied it so that the multitude could be filled. Father, would you grant us the humility to hear your call in our lives? To step out from the shadows, to step out from the crowd, to step out from our comfort in order that the little that we have might be multiplied in sweet surrender to the blessing of the nations, the blessing of the world here. Thank you so much. We love you. We surrender to your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.